0: So welcome to this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. Uh, I am your host, Dave Ingram, and I'm very excited uh, to welcome Dr. Richard Pauly as our guest today to discuss respiratory and sleep problems in children with achondroplasia. Um, Dr. Pauly is a medical geneticist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, He established the Midwest Regional Bone Dysplasia Clinic and was awarded a lifetime membership to the Little People of America uh, in recognition of his work with families with bone growth disorders. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. Uh, So, I'd like to talk about uh, pulmonary and sleep disorders in a minute, but uh, there are a few kind of background questions that I'd like to, to ask to get started. Um, So caring for children with achondroplasia has been a focus for you for decades. Uh, What got you interested in this patient population?
1: Well, during my fellowship, I had some contact with uh, individuals with bone dysplasias because I trained with Judy Hall out at the University of Washington, and she had some interest in it as well. And then I came to the University of Wisconsin and in 1982 almost 40 years ago, um, there was a radiologist here by the name of Dr. Len Langer, who was uh, one of the first to accurately describe various bone dysplasias, and he sidled up to me in the hall one day and said, in his usual way, well, we need a geneticist in a bone dysplasia clinic. I guess that's you. And that's how it began. And after a few years of uh, fits and starts of not really quite sure what I was supposed to be doing, I realized that I really did have a role and could contribute to the care of kids and their families in a productive way. And so that continued for decades thereafter.
0: So the the, the people listening to this are pediatric pulmonologists and sleep physicians. Uh Could you give a brief overview for the non-geneticists of the genetics of achondroplasia? Sure.
1: So achondroplasia is a single-gene disorder. It's uh, uniformly and without exception caused by uh, variants or mutations in a gene that's called FGFR3. It's a dominant disorder, which means that Um, one copy of that variant or mutated FGFR3 gene results in the clinical phenotype that we describe as being achondroplasia. If a parent has achondroplasia, then there's a 50% chance that each of their offspring will likewise. But in fact, the vast majority, around 80% of children who are born with achondroplasia are born to average stature at unaffected parents uh, because of the remarkably high um, new mutation rate that occurs in that uh, particular gene.
0: So you just published a, a really wonderful comprehensive clinical review uh, just last month uh, that is a great read and I would direct our listeners to that article uh, that goes over all the potential or a lot of the potential health uh, challenges that uh, these children can face, uh, and management of those. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting things in there. One thing I found really interesting was uh, the way that these children learn to crawl uh, and uh, the terms that uh, that you, you coined to kind of uh, describe that. Can you describe what snow plowing or reverse snow plowing is?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, if I can give a very short bit of background first, this is a good Please, example it, of how Clinical observation leads to new insight, uh, and that is is that what the clinical observation was is that parents were coming to our clinic, and in our discussions were expressing their worry about the strange ways that their uh, children were getting around. Uh, this is that is pre-orthograde movements movements before they got up on their feet and began to walk, and all of us know the typical sequence that average kids go through in terms of crawling capabilities but many kids with achondroplasia just don't do that um, for biophysical reasons because if they try to crawl in the usual way their short arms and legs and their uh, prominent tummies mean that they're basically dragging uh, their belly on the ground and uh, crawling doesn't really affect much uh, benefit for them and so two strategies that they discover is snow plowing and reverse snow plowing. Snow plowing is using their feet and their forehead uh, to travel along the uh, surface uh, with support on their forehead rather than on their hands. That gets their uh, belly off the ground and it also supports what is a large and heavy head that is uniformly present in achondroplasia as well. And reverse snow plowing, if you flip that and put the baby on their back now, um, is up on heels and the back of the head and scooting uh, toward the head in that position. Each of those serves advantages for a child who has the physical characteristics of achondroplasia, but obviously each of those also has certain disadvantages that uh, mean that they are inevitably transient uh, adaptations. With snow plowing, Um, you just uh, don't see anything that you're going toward. And with reverse snow plowing, obviously, it's upside down. And so in neither of those instances uh, can we expect it to last more than a few months. But it is a curious adaptation that is completely adaptive. It is not worrisome, and uh, parents and caregivers can be reassured about it.
0: That's a really interesting finding. So, uh, let's talk about a few pulmonary and sleep issues now. Uh, one concern that uh, we're always thinking about uh, is the risk of uh, unexpected death during infancy. What, you know, when was this first recognized as a risk and how is the connection made to uh, cranial cer- cervical junction?
1: Okay. So there were bits and pieces of hints earlier than what I'll be describing, but no one had really put it together and understood that this actually had a considerable significance for babies with uh, achondroplasia, those hints being that the uh, size of the foramen magnum and the area of the cervical junction was markedly constricted and an occasional uh, description of babies dying who uh, had achondroplasia. And then back uh, 35 years ago in my clinic, there was a little boy um, who seemed to be healthy and had a achondroplasia and then died in his sleep at three months of age. And through that, we assumed initially that he had sudden infant death syndrome. And back then, there was uh, the assumption that there was a strong familial and presumably genetic component to SIDS. And so we um, tested his next sibling who also was affected with achondroplasia as was their father and discovered with a early and rather crude sleep study back in, let's see, that was 1984 I guess, um, that she had uh, unexplained um, central pauses of quite significant duration, which worried us of course, but also raised the question of could there be some relationship. Uh, between achondroplasia and the unexpected death that the little boy had experienced. And so first we began retrospectively searching out whether there were similar cases around the country and discovered that there were many, but nobody had ever reported them because each clinic or each center had one um, and so had assumed in a similar way that it was coincidence or non-significant and then through those retrospective ascertainments, we recognized that most or perhaps all of those individuals who had died had pathologic lesions at the craniocervical junction and in the lower medullary region, including the areas that presumptively um, incorporated the respiratory control centers. And so the postulate then was that constriction, at the craniocervical junction could, in some instances, result presumably in vascular compromise, vascular compromise resulting in abnormalities in the respiratory control centers, in turn resulting in sloppiness of central respiratory control and apnea during sleep. And then, obviously, in turn, uncontrolled or unreversed apnea resulting in death. We now know that that does in fact occur. It occurs in a minority of babies with achondroplasia. If no evaluations are completed, if nothing is done, somewhere in the vicinity of probably 3% of babies with achondroplasia will die. Uh, That's unacceptable, of course. And so what we've been trying to do over the past couple of decades is to understand uh, both mechanism just as importantly, trying to understand how it is that we can identify that small group of babies that are at high risk and intervene so that they uh, in fact have a better outcome.
0: exactly. so there are people have proposed different ways of assessing for that risk. Uh, what evaluation makes the most sense to you or what approach makes the most sense to you
1: Fair enough. Uh, there is controversy about what the best approach is. Um, what we recommend and what I think is the most sensible is that every baby, first of all, needs to be diagnosed as quickly as possible in infancy because what we know is, is that the risk um, is maximal between three and 11 months of age. Um, the same kind of time frame as for uh, otherwise unexplained deaths. Um, and if an early diagnosis is then made, what we recommend is neuroimaging of the craniocervical cervical junction, which in itself is insufficient to uh, determine whether or not intervention is warranted. Um, a careful neurologic history and neurologic examination looking for any evidence of um, high cervical myelopathy and polysomnography. And that polysomnogram is looking principally at um, unusually prominent abnormalities of uh, central respiratory control. If those three studies are completed, then one has a fairly clean picture of whether or not intervention is going to be warranted. It's not perfect, and that is if we can't predict that, oh, these 3% of babies would have died and therefore we need to intervene, the best we can do is about uh, to uh, uh, identify about 10% of babies that appear to be at high risk, and then we refer those to the pediatric neurosurgeon for um, cranio-cervical decompression.
0: So we've talked about uh, the risk of central apnea. Um, these kids are also at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, what's your experience been with uh, different management approaches? Certainly, there are several treatment options available: surgery, CPAP, things like that. Uh, yep. What What has your experience been?
1: So, uh, in terms of obstructive apnea, obviously, for kids with achondroplasia, just like uh, every child, the um, age of risk is different than what we've just talked about. Uh, mostly in the over two years of age range, although surprisingly enough there are some infants who have uh, demonstrated unequivocal severe obstructive apnea with achondroplasia as well. Um, The stepwise management is pretty much the same um, as uh, individuals who don't have achondroplasia. And that is is the best estimate is, is that in childhood, about one in three individuals with achondroplasia will have clinically significant obstruction. And in those who do, uh, what we know is, is their airways are small. We can't do much about that. Obviously, they're going to have lymphatic hypertrophy because of their age. And so first line of treatment, just like with anybody else, is tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. Interestingly enough, when we did a retrospective study, it was pretty clear that those who had adenectomy, adenoidectomy alone didn't do as well as those who had both adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy. And as a non-pulmonologist, I don't really understand that, but that's what it is. Um, should that fail, um, then the consideration, obviously, is to go to the next step of uh, positive airway pressure. Um, That's been highly effective in the majority of babies and children that we've used it in. Um, The only biggest problem that is unique, I suppose, to kids with achondroplasia is because of their craniofacial morphology. Mask fitting is more challenging, um, but can be done if you have a good respiratory therapist working at it.
0: Exactly, yes, Uh, they can be a a world of help. the other uh, pulmonary issue that you have published on is restrictive pulmonary disease in these kids. Uh, uh, what, what did you find when you looked at that?
1: Well, first of all, uh, neither we nor anybody else has a good sense of what the actual prevalence of at least what I still call restrictive disease. I understand the terminology is changing, but um, so we don't really know what the prevalence is. We know that it's substantial. Um, I could throw out a guess, but it would be really a guess. Um, What we do know about it is, first of all, babies with achondroplasia on average have a significantly smaller than um, normal chest size. Secondly, they have um, an overly compliant chest, and so um, they have a whole bunch of paradoxical movement with inspiration uh, with sinking into the chest that looks a lot like retractions look like. Uh, even even if they're comfortable breathers. Um, probably because of that combination, um, we see desaturations much more quickly because of other characteristics in sleep when polysomnography is done in infants who have achontraplasia. So they begin to have desats and dips, uh, even with rather benign-looking um,
0: variations
1: in central control of respiration. Rarely, the restrictive component is so severe that it becomes health or life-threatening, and there are occasional babies with achondroplasia that have severe failure to thrive uh, because of it if if intervention isn't uh, undertaken. And a very small percentage, in our experience, about 1% of babies with achondroplasia end up having temporary tracheostomy, mostly to decrease dead space.
0: Is there anything else that you think is important for pulmonary and sleep providers to keep in mind when we're caring for children with achondroplasia that we haven't talked about?
1: Well, the most important thing is what I've already, I think, emphasized, but I can't help but emphasize it once more, which is early diagnosis and early evaluation in order to um, prevent catastrophic um, complications related to the craniocervical junction. That's, that's more important than anything else because all of the other characteristics can be dealt with over the course of weeks or months in most instances. That, on the other hand, can be truly emergent.
0: Dr. Richard Pauley, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise, uh, and uh, I would encourage our listeners to uh, read your recently published article, Acrondroplasia, a Comprehensive Clinical Review, uh, published last month in the Journal, uh, Orphanet Journal of Rare Diseases. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast.